Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Ridge Church Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, check us out online at theridgechurch.net. Also, be sure to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening today. Well, today, um, we, we're going to turn a page a little bit. We're going to move back into the New Testament. Um, we spent some time here in Jonah and then Nahum in the Old Testament, some minor prophets. Um, and we've decided to kind of turn a page and come back in the New Testament. We're going to look at the Gospel of Mark. Now, for those of you, for the first 10 minutes or so here, we're going to have some setup. So it's going to take a little bit to get to the big idea of our message today, but I want to kind of give you uh, some information about the book and about the writer of the book and the relationship the writer has with other people in Scripture, um, in case maybe you don't know. The first thing is we're talking about the Gospel of Mark. And, and so what does it mean that the Gospel of Mark. What is, there's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, right? We call them the Gospels. What are the Gospels? If somebody came to you and says, what are the Gospels? I hear there, hey, there's four Gospels. And what, what that, is that Gospel music? Is that Gospel, uh, what does it mean that, I thought we preach the Gospel, but there's four Gospels in, in the Bible. Like, how's that? Well, the word Gospel, in some respects, these are just biographies of Jesus, there are four different men, and really, in some respects, there's more than four tied up in here, and I'll explain that in a minute, but there's four different men that are writing about this person, Jesus of Nazareth, the, the people that they claim to be the Messiah, right? God in the flesh. And, and so they're recording his life, his ministry, things he said. It is not an all-encompassing thing, right? In other words, the Gospels are really fixed primarily on the last three years of his life, which is ministry. Matthew and a little bit in some of the other books talk about his early childhood, but very, very little. Really, it's all about his time here on earth that he was proclaiming who he was, sharing the gospel, um, loving people, uh, teaching people about him and who he is and why he came. And so these biographies are just to to make much of him, to say this is who he is, and this is all the beautiful things about him, right? And so when we think about that, the Gospels are good news. And we've said this a few weeks ago. What does the word gospel mean? It means good news, right? It's the good news about Jesus, and we're going to see that even how he starts his letter. And so these biographies are good news about Jesus because Jesus is good news, right? He's good news for those that realize that we're sinners and we need to be saved. We need a way of, to come back to God. And so that's kind of where it's at. Now, each gospel writer, and I'm not going to go into a lot of this, each gospel writer is a little different. All right, They write differently. Just a, a few years ago, we went through the gospel of John. That's a lot different than the gospel of Mark. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about why the gospel of Mark is unique in its ways, but that's kind of where we're at. Now, if you're kind of astute here and you've read much scripture, Mark was not an eyewitness of the life of Jesus. He was not an apostle. We don't, we don't think he traveled with him. He wasn't one of his apostles. We don't know all their interactions. If he ever saw Jesus, met Jesus, we're not even sure. It doesn't seem like it, but we're not sure. Scripture doesn't say. So how can he write all the things he writes in Mark, in the Gospel of Mark, if he wasn't an eyewitness of Jesus, right? Because... It's almost undeniable that he really was writing for the Apostle Peter, right? We don't know why. Peter was a fisherman. Um, you know, he was obviously a great preacher, and he spoke, and he taught. But he doesn't seem to write as much. Even in the epistles, First and Second Peter, there's questions whether maybe um, Silas or somebody helped pin some of those. And so, so for whatever reason, Mark is close with Peter, and he's writing this with Peter. So really, when we think about the gospel of Mark, you could say it's the gospel of Peter, really, right? And so just, just kind of remember that that's kind of when we see that, because someone said, well, well, Mark wasn't an eyewitness. No, he wasn't, but he was very close with Peter, and I'll show you that here in just a minute. But before we go to the relationship between Mark and Peter, I want to take you back to the relationship between Paul and Mark, okay? And Mark's name is really John Mark, um, it was his surname, uh, John, and it, so it's a John Mark. And so sometimes you'll see in Scripture where it says John Mark. Sometimes it's just Mark, but usually it's John Mark. I, I want to take you back to really Acts chapter 12. 
to kind of set this picture here. Jesus has died and resurrected. Time has passed. Uh, a few years have passed, actually. Uh, Paul has come to know Christ. That Saul, his name has been changed to, to Paul. And him and Barnabas have, have been praying. The elders at Antioch had laid hands on them. And Paul and Barnabas are going to go to what we call modern-day Turkey or Asia Minor. And, and they're going to go, and they're going to be the first missionary journey. And so Barnabas has what we think is his cousin, John Mark, this young man. And he brings him, and they said, Barnabas says, hey, can we bring him? And Paul says, absolutely. And so they bring him, and the three of them head off into modern-day Turkey, and they begin to share the gospel. And they begin to teach, and they don't get far, and John bails on them. He leaves. We don't know why. It doesn't say. So I want to take you to Acts chapter um, 12, verse 25. And first we're going to see where we, they get John or what, how he kind of gets John Mark kind of comes on board. It says, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service. They had went down to Jerusalem uh, to take some uh, money, some offerings for the early church there. There were some struggles. And so they took some money down to them and they were coming back to Antioch. It says, bringing with them John. John was in Jerusalem when they went down there to give the money. They got John. They, they ran into John somehow. We don't know. And they brought him back, right? And I would say that we're looking at John as a, a John Mark is a pretty young man at this time. And it says, whose other name was Mark. Okay, so John Mark. So this was Paul's first missionary journey. We're thinking somewhere 44, 46 AD. So, okay. And then when he bails, we see this in Acts chapter 15, verse 37 and 39. It says, now Barnabas wanted to take with them John Mark, all right? Because now they're going to go on a second missionary journey. They come back, he bails, they do the, and they come back to Antioch. And now they're getting ready to go again. And Barnabas says, hey, Paul, let's take John Mark again. But it says, Paul thought best not to take with them the one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. So now Barnabas and Paul, who were close, who have shared the gospel, have endured all sorts of things on their first missionary journey. I mean, incredible things. Now we're at odds with each other over this young man named John Mark. And it says they have this disagreement and they separate from each other. It says Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, right? If you read in that text a little bit later, Paul then gets Silas, and he goes on his second missionary journey. And so one of the things that, that I think is so interesting about when we think about biographies and the gospel is that it is not, we see all of the, the reality of relationships here. If someone was making all this up, none of this challenging life would have probably been in there. This is eyewitness accounts. These are relationships that really took place. One, one of the things that I think about from time to time, um, sometimes I'm in a Bible study, sometimes it's just a text that I'm reading. I felt this way when I was studying uh, this week over this. What you're holding and what you're reading, a young man 2,000 years ago wrote down. A friend of mine whose father recently passed away, um, his father kept a journal. Uh, it wasn't really a diary, but just kind of a journal of everything that took place in his life. And he's passed away, and so they found these journals, and they're reading them. And it is deeply moving. If you have things from someone that's maybe passed away, or maybe you have, um, I think writing is, is the most amazing thing, but even sometimes now with video, but I think writing is unique because it's, it's their hand writing. You can see it. It's, it was them. One of the things that just floors me is that this has been recorded 2,000 years ago, and it's the same. This, this has not been um, changed. That This has not been reworded. If you, if you study all of the, the things about translation and the text, these words in this, this text is, is literally, obviously it's in English, so it's, it's not in the original language, but it is almost word for word for what he wrote down. There's, there's no, um, oh, it was translated so many times, so many times. No, it's always going back to the original manuscripts, okay? And when you study that, you'll see that 
all the manuscripts are identical. There's little tiny words that maybe the, the, the translator or the scribe changed or something, but, but every significant thing is the same. And so when we study, when we go through this book, I just want you to remember that this is, God is communicating about himself. God is having men write a biography about Jesus and about himself. And there's four of them, and they are amazing. So he parts ways. So this is the relationship now. But I will tell you that later in about 67 AD, Paul and John Mark become close again. And where do we see this? We see this in 2 Timothy. This is Paul's, probably his last letter that we have been written to this young man named Timothy. We just did 1 Timothy recently. In chapter 4, verse 11, we see here he says, he's telling Timothy now, get Mark, this is John Mark, and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. So here, something has taken place. There has been reconciliation. Mark has probably grown up in many ways, and he's now connected. And, and I'm going to give you some thoughts on what I think may have happened here as we look at this other relationship. So that was the relationship between John Mark and Paul. And then we see that John Mark has a relationship with Peter, which now gets to why he helps Peter write this book. Somewhere around between 50 and 55 AD, which is kind of in between when, when John Mark goes with them and, and fails on the first missionary journey. We, we think he obviously, Paul was very disappointed for whatever. He got cold feet. He got scared. I don't know. He wanted to go home. He went home. Somewhere between there, obviously, and when in 67 AD, when Paul says he is he's useful in my ministry, he, he cares for Mark. Something must have happened in that time to, to grow him up. And I think his relationship with Peter is what took place. We look at it in Acts 12, 12. This is early now. And he says this. He says, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary. Now, this is Peter. Peter was in prison. God sets him free, right? Delivers him. The mother of John, whose other name was Mark. So Peter gets out of prison. These people are in this house. It's the house of Mary. And Mary is John Mark's mother. And Peter's going there. And why is he going there? Because that's where the church had been gathering, it looks like. And they had been praying that God would release Peter. In fact, if you read the story, it's hilarious. He comes to the door and knocks on the door, and they won't let him in. Somebody's saying, hey, it's Peter. And they're saying, no, he's not. He's in prison. And finally, they go to the door, and they realize it truly is Peter. And they let him in, and they're overjoyed. You know, it's interesting. John Mark, whatever happens, he obviously lets Paul down. And you think Peter can relate to that? Because Peter bailed on Jesus, right? He left him. And so I think maybe there's this thing that Peter, that he has a heart for Mark. Here's a young man. Obviously, Peter was probably a young man when he was following Jesus originally, when he, he decided to deny him, and, and then he got restored. And I believe Peter is coming along and discipling this young man named John Mark. We see it here in 1 Peter when Peter writes his epistle, his letter. And the very end of the, the epistle in chapter 5, verse 13 in fact, it's the second to last verse in the, in the letter. It says, she who is at Babylon. Now, there he's talking about the church. Who's at Babylon? He's talking about the church there. Who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. So he's just letting them know that the church is sending them greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Now, doesn't mean he's a biological son. Peter had kind of adopted John Mark as a spiritual son. Right? We see that Paul had done that with Timothy. You know, one of the things that, um, and clearly um, we don't do well at this, is that as believers, we should be adopting or discipling other people. In this relationship, it's a very intimate spiritual relationship. They're walking alongside each other in life. And I would just ask you, who are you doing that with? Who is doing that for you? Right? Who, who is kind of coming alongside you and walking alongside you? See, that's really what discipleship is about. It's about building relationships and walking with each other. It's about 
helping each other through difficult circumstances. It's about reminding each other, being in the word together, sharing the gospel, reminding the hope that we have in Christ, being intentional about our walk. And one of the things I think it struggles in, our, in the American church today is because we've become so kind of independent you know, we, as I say all the time, we build privacy fences, we get electric garage doors, we go into our house, we shut the door, and we leave the world outside. And, and we don't want to show anybody what's going on in our heart. We don't really walk transparent with anyone. And, and I think that that's one of the struggles, and, and we have to have intention. But the world and our culture just fills our time up with so many things. Not bad things necessarily, good things. I mean, sports and and. You know, all sorts of things, work and jobs, and, and those are good things. But when those things squeeze out and push out discipleship making and relationship building, we've gone too far. I think many in our culture today, myself included, struggle with, with being disciplined to not do that and to keep the first thing the first thing. So here we see that John Mark and Peter are close. And I think that's why then Mark grows up with him. He's mentored and they become friends, close friends, uh, associates, so to speak, brothers in the gospel. And Mark begins to record what Peter is sharing with him about what he witnessed with Jesus. All right, so that's about the author. What about the audience? Who's the, who's the intent of the text, right? Who is the intent of the text? Who's it for? I believe it's primarily, obviously it's for us today, um, and we fit this category to some degree, but primarily it was to Roman, to the Roman church, which were Gentiles, not Jews, right? Mostly Gentiles. And you say, well, how do you know that? Well, when you look at how the book was written, how the gospel was written, it's completely different like than the book of Matthew. Matthew was written for a Jewish audience. He talks about all the lineage, all the things that Jews would have cared about, right? Jesus came from this person, this person, this line, this line. It doesn't, Mark doesn't talk about any of that. He jumps from one thing to another thing to another thing to another thing. Because he knows that his audience doesn't care about all that and they don't understand all that. And so, but he wants to get to the purpose of why Jesus came. And one of the things he's gonna share is he's gonna talk about that Jesus was a servant. He's gonna talk more about his deeds than he is what Jesus taught, all right? He's gonna unfold the life of Christ and this man Jesus that he calls the Messiah to the Gentiles, right? Because it's that is what's impacting them because they're not Jews. So it's mostly a Gentile audience. Interesting fact, and I didn't know this until I was studying this week. Mark is the most translated book in the whole world. Now, obviously the Bible, you'd say, well, the Bible's the most published book. But Mark, because obviously when, when a Bible gets translated into multiple languages, they don't translate the whole Bible usually. They start with the Gospels or they start with you know, certain books of the Bible, certain letters. Mark is the number one. I would, not have, I would not have thought that. I would have not have guessed that. And the reason that most um, historians believe that to be true, one, it was the shortest, right? The shortest of the Gospels. And so there's some, just some administrative things maybe there. But I think the bigger reason is, is that the primary audience was Gentiles. And so when we're thinking about translating a gospel to someone in Africa, to someone in East Asia, to someone around the world, right, in South America, what, they don't, they're not Jews. All the lineage, all the, the customs of the Jewish people, that's not really what's grabbing them, right? I mean, that's important. Don't get me wrong. As we study, we should study all the gospels. But if we're going to have to choose which gospel to send, Mark is just packed with very practical things about who Jesus is, and he's not losing his audience. And so it was written for people unfamiliar with the first century Judaism or Jews. All right, let's get to our text. So now we know who the audience is, mostly Gentiles. We know who wrote, the, who wrote it and how they kind of partnered to do it. We know the relationship between Paul. We know that a gospel is a biography about someone. In this particular case, the four gospels are biographies about Jesus. And we know that the gospel itself is about good news. And so here what we're going to see is God begins to, to share with 
work through Peter and Mark, because I believe all these words are, are God-inspired. These are what God wanted them to write, even though they were you know, writing together, possibly. In the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is first sentence. So he opens up the gospel, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So really what Paul and Peter, or excuse me, uh, John, Mark, and, and Peter are really saying is, look, this is the beginning of the presentation and the unveiling of the gospel as God would have it in a, in a, in a very practical sort of way. Obviously, um, we can see the good news. Even in the Old Testament, we see pictures of Christ. We see all of that. But here, God takes on flesh, becomes a, a man, lives a sinless life, and dies. And now Peter is reflecting on all of this and putting this down with Mark's help. And the first thing he says, I'm getting ready to start at the beginning of these three years and kind of share with you the good news about Jesus. That's, see, when, when we watch this OCC video, what do those kids want? Good news about who Jesus is. What were those little girls talking about? The good news about Jesus, right? Not about, well, Jesus was the, you know, in the line of this, 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 this. No, that's, we can study that. That's important. But the primary thing is who is Jesus and why is he good news, Right? And then notice it says there, it says, the son of God. Now, in some respects, we're all sons of God. If, we're, have, if we've come to know Christ, if we're in Christ, we're all kind of, Scripture says we're sons of God. But really, I think this, this could be translated as God the son, right? God the son. All right. So what, is, what am I going to do now for the next few minutes? We're going to look at how the text here that we look at um, what, what is God doing here in the text? We always want to look, what's, what's the purpose of this text? And, and this morning, I want to make the argument, the purpose of this text is that God is kind of validating or affirming his son, right? He, he's, he's introducing you in the first page of this biography to who his son is. And, and the most important thing now is, does, how do we know that this is who he says he is? Because God is going to affirm it. God himself is going to say, this is my son, all right? And here's who he is, and here's, here's what I can tell you about him. And, and this, this text is packed with things, and we're just going to pick a few, right? And so I, I want to say, I'm going to use the word affirm this morning. And if you look up the definition, to affirm is to state or assert positively, maintain is true. So what I'm saying here is when we talk about the word affirm, it's not, oh, I want to affirm you and, you know, you know make you feel comfortable in, in who you are. No, this is to say, no, this is true. This is positively true, right? And so we're going to see God the Father affirm things about his son, okay? So what's your big idea this morning? God the Father affirms God the Son. That's how he starts this biography, this gospel. God the Father affirms God the Son. All right, let's get started here. Verse 2. He starts out, it says, he's referring now to the Old Testament. So I love how he's, he's tying this together. He's not saying, hey, this is just something we think. This is not something that, that Mark and Peter have come up with. No, he's, he's tying it to the rest of history, to the rest of Scripture. It says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now, if you go back and you look at Isaiah, so first of all, who's he talking about here? Who's this messenger? It's John the Baptist. Um, they called him the baptizer, right? He was baptizing people in the Jordan, right? Primarily here, he's, he's speaking of John the Baptist, and, and he's going to send John, he has sent John into the world to prepare the way for the Messiah, to come into the world. And we'll talk a little bit more about this in a second. It says, behold. That word, behold, um, is like a proclamation. It is, it, it is a bold thing that says, this is what's happening. Take note. Behold. Right? This is a huge announcement. Right? This is, this is not, um, you know, we've been going around for thousands of years. He comes on the scene here in, in Isaiah and I think Malachi as well and basically says, behold, I'm going to do something 
miraculous here. I'm going to do something instantaneously. Something without notice is going to come in, and it's going to be that I'm going to send a messenger that's going to proclaim the way of my son. It says, behold, I send my messenger. See the the ownership here that God is doing. This is what God is doing. I, meaning God the Father, is going to send his messenger. Not just anyone. John the Baptist is going to be his messenger for this purpose. And he's going to send him before the face of the people, right? Before your face. And what is John the Baptist going to do? He's going to prepare a way. Prepare for you a way. He's going to prepare a way, and we're going to talk about what that looks like. Because Jesus is the way, but that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about preparing a way, making it so that we are ready for the Messiah. Now, I think this text that he's saying is written by the prophet Isaiah is really a combination of a couple texts of the Old Testament. I think it's in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Let's read that. So this is Old Testament, right? Malachi. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. See where that's at in Malachi? And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now this was way before, hundreds of years before this text here in the New Testament. So Malachi, the prophet, is is saying God is going to send his messenger, right? Now, there's some, I'm not 100% sure, but but I believe that some of this is is sarcasm here in, in Malachi. It says, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. I think those were probably sarcastic statements. Because the Jews did not, they were living disobediently. They, did, they weren't delighting in the Lord. If you can see when you go back into Malachi, they weren't delighting in the Lord. And so he's saying, I'm going to send this guy. And he's kind of saying, and he's the Lord of the covenant, right? He's the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, this, this coming. But he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So there's no question that Malachi is announcing that in the future, the Messiah is going to come and there's going to be a messenger. Doesn't name him here, but it's going to be John the Baptist as we see now here in the Gospels. And then we look at Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. It says, A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So now Isaiah is pointing. And see, that's the beautiful thing about when we study the Old Testament. Um, The prophets are, are pointing, and so many things are saying, this is what's coming. This is what's coming, right? They're declaring. They're They're saying, Behold, this is what's coming. Now, for some of us, we don't have patience. You know, we sit in the fast food line, and it tells us our food's going to be ready. We want it right now. In Scripture, that could be hundreds of years from now. But to God, that's a very short time, right? He said, behold, this is what's going to be taking place. And so if God is affirming God the Son, if God the Father is affirming God the Son, what is he affirming here? There's two things I want to point out to you that I think are being affirmed by God the Father. The first one is that God affirms that Jesus is coming. God is affirming. God the Father is affirming that Jesus is coming. Now, he's doing that in the Old Testament. He's saying he is coming. He's doing that here by Mark and Peter writing this and referring back to John the Baptist. This is affirming that he is sending his son into the world. There's no question about that, right? No question about that. Now, we would say that Jesus is going to have two comings, right? He came once, and he's coming again. And so I would just like to share with you that I think that message is still true today, that we can say God is declaring that Jesus is coming. And he's coming soon. I'm not going to give you a date tomorrow, 100 years from now. I don't know. But when you look around, we see the season Matthew says, or Jesus says in Matthew, you'll know that you won't know the day or the hour, but you'll know the season. You'll see the leaves changing. Like right now, if you walked outside, I said, Is it spring? You would say, No. I said, Is it winter? No. Is it summer? No. It's fall, Raleigh. Because you can look at things and say, I, I can see that. I just want you to look at scripture. Look at the world. Be thoughtful, be prayerful, 
I don't think it's spring. I think we're entering into a season that Jesus is going to be coming. Now, maybe that'll be after my lifetime. I don't know. But clearly, he is coming. God is affirming that. The second thing I think that Scripture is affirming here is that God affirms that Jesus is Lord. God affirms that Jesus is Lord. So notice as he's speaking here, the messenger is obviously not God, but but what does he say? As is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of Christ, one in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. So when Jesus comes, what they're saying there in the Old Testament is he's going to be the Lord. The one that comes is going to be the Lord. The one who's coming, that John is proclaiming this come, is going to be God in the flesh, Christ, right? And when he says it in Malachi, Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. He is the one that's going to come into his temple. He is the messenger of the covenant, right? In in Isaiah, he says, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in a desert highway for our God. He's saying that Jesus is God. Prepare a way for our God to come, right? He's not just saying a man. He is fully man, fully God, right? Truly God, truly man. Now, I want to say something here about preparing. Um, so John is preaching repentance, we're going to see here in a second. And this idea of preparing, preaching repentance, why was he preaching repentance? Because he thought everybody was sinful? No, yes. But he was proclaiming pre- repentance because Christ was coming. And he knew that he wanted to prepare the people for their Savior. And what do they do to prepare? They repent of their sin. They confess their sin. That's what he was preparing. He was preparing our hearts or their hearts. And I would tell you that that is true even today in the scripture. The scripture should be preparing your heart for his coming to be ready. And how do we get ready? We repent of our sin. We confess our sin. We bring it into the light. We kill it. We do all of these things because God wants us to be ready. And I just want to ask you, are you ready this morning? Have you, when we take communion, what do we say? You should not take it if you have willful sin in your heart that's unconfessed. Because all of that is about preparing our hearts, right, to be ready for when he comes. Because if we are not ready when he comes, if we are not found in Christ, what did we say last week? There is destruction and wrath. Nahum makes that very clear in the Old Testament. All right, let's look at verse 4 through 5. We're going to keep moving here. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins, all right? So everybody was coming. Somehow God was working to prepare them. They knew that they needed to come and admit they were sinful. And what you gotta remember is for Jews now, many of these were Jewish people, they they didn't believe in being baptized this way. They, had, they didn't need to. The people that got, and I, I'm, for all those who are infant baptism people, I think the scripture here really teaches baptism by immersion. I'm not gonna debate that with you all this morning, but I think that's the, the picture here, right? They were already clean, so to speak. Gentiles that became Jews got baptized by immersion, were washed ceremonially, right? So for a Jew to go down and get in the river, to get baptized, what is happening here? God is opening their hearts and revealing to them that they need a full cleansing, that the animal sacrifices are not cutting it. This is, their hearts are hard. They're, they're turned away from God, and they are coming, and pre- God is preparing them for the Messiah, okay? He came baptizing, offering a ceremonial washing, that confessed sin and did something to demonstrate true repentance. This word to baptize is really to be overwhelmed. It's this idea that, that when the Spirit comes into us, we're overwhelmed. If, if you're a believer this morning and, and, and you know that when God gives us his Holy Spirit, when we come to, to believe and confess in Christ and he comes and makes his home in us, we are overwhelmed many times. It's a picture of that when we baptize someone, we're overwhelming them in the water. They're dying. It's a significant event. John chapter, or excuse me, 
Mark chapter 1, verse 6 and 7. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. That's a good diet plan. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. In that culture, rabbis had kind of um, people they discipled and, and servants, and, and they did all sorts of things. The rabbis had them do all sorts of things to take care of them. But even the rabbi wouldn't have them untie their shoes because they just thought that's just too low to ask somebody to do that, right? I just, I just wouldn't ask somebody to do that. And, and, and what John the Baptist is saying here, he says, is, that's the lowest thing, and I'm not even available. I'm not able to do that for him. I, he is so majestic. I, I can't even, I'm not even worthy for that menial thing of the Messiah. This, this picture of, of camel hair and all this, we can look back at Elijah, very similar. He proclaims that, that God is coming and, and he's speaking about that and it's, it's pointing to Jesus. All these people are pointing to Jesus. In fact, even in the Gospels, nobody really says, I wrote this, right? We're, we're sometimes in the epistles of Paul, Paul says, I wrote it basically. And why does it not? Because this is not about them. God is making sure that the, the purpose of this biography, the purpose of the gospel writers, is to make it all about Jesus, not about them. Not about them. So we see this in the Old Testament as well. And so what do we see here in the text? After he who comes is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. God the Father affirms Jesus' majesty. Here he's just affirming that who is coming is not just anyone. This is a majestic, holy God. And, and that's what John the Baptist is understanding here. right? He understands it. He gets it. In verse 8, it goes on there. It says, I have baptized you with water, right? But he, this is John talking now, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In other words, I, I can baptize you with water, but I, I, he's going to come and overwhelm you when he comes. Right? This idea of being fully engulfed in him, submersed. And we, we get that symbolization when we baptize someone, but this idea that he's going to just overwhelm you. In fact, that's why we say when we baptize someone, they're dying. It's that sort of overwhelming. It's putting you to death. It overwhelms your flesh. And you die spiritually. Where do we see this then? In the New Testament, we see this idea kind of picked up by Paul in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. Such a great passage. It says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Don't you know that when the Holy Spirit comes in and, and makes his home in you, you, you the old person is going to die because he's going to overwhelm you? You're going to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. It's going to be a, an incredible, overwhelming thing. Paul's saying, Do you not know that all of us Anybody that is truly a, a born-again believer is going to be baptized into Christ, in him, right? We're going to be in him because we're baptized into his death. We're going to agree that we need to come and die. And that's why the Jews were coming down, even though they didn't understand all that, and say, I will be baptized because they realized that they were sinful. They realized they needed to fully confess their sins, I mean, can you think about that for a moment? When was the last time we had a service that everybody just wanted to confess their sins to one another? <laughs> right? Because you're so overwhelmed. You know Jesus is coming, and you just need to get it out. You need to be honest with yourself and honest with other people in close to your life. I don't, I don't know. We're, we're pretty guarded anymore. Maybe it's because we don't think Jesus is really coming. Maybe we don't think that God is really who he says he is. But this, this, is where, this is where Brian and I and our elders are trying to move us as a church to encourage this, this loving relationship that we can be frank and open with each other. I have a group of men that I meet with, and, and man, I think we're pretty, we're pretty open with each other. I mean, we're, I don't know that we're hiding anything. 
Now, I tell all the guys, now don't share anything that you don't want out because even though we, we say we shouldn't talk to anybody else about it, something sometimes happens, right? I've tried to, to demonstrate that as your pastor by being very candid about my past and about my failures, even in the present. Not to, not to make it about me, but to say, look, I want to be transparent before you. I, I don't want to be hiding any sin in my heart. And I don't want that for you. He goes on here and says, in Romans chapter 6, verse 3 and 4, he says, We were buried, therefore, by him by baptism into his death. In other words, this thing that overwhelmed us, it buried us. It died, we died. In order that, why was that necessary? In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. So we have to die before we can have newness of life. You can't stay the old person and hold on to all of that and experience the newness of the birth. You can't live in both places. You have to die. Now, that doesn't mean we'll live perfectly. It means that our heart has to move from here to here. Our desires, what we want, what we value, what we worship has to move. We have to die to the worldly desires of life and love what God is doing in our hearts and we want to please him and worship him. And so what's the next thing we see here? God affirms Jesus' power to change our lives. God affirms Jesus' power to change our lives. I will affirm that that's true because he has changed my life. And I bet you many, if I could ask all of you to speak, you would affirm that Jesus has changed your life. He has the power to change your life. I heard a pastor once say, the greatest miracle in all the world is changing the human heart, right? Because it is so hard and so distant from God. Verse 9 and 11. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. Horrible place, right? He's just showing that Jesus is not coming from royalty here. Nazareth was, a, as some pastors, some people would say historians, a backwater town, right? Jesus of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And he came up out of the water. And I don't mean like he walked out. I think that means he comes up out of the water. That's just my personal interpretation here immediately saw the heavens being tore open and the spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven you are my beloved son with whom i'm well pleased i don't have time to go into all of that because we're running out of time here but th- this idea that that god is affirming him he's affirming directly who he is right he's affirming that he is well pleased right it's the only place one of the only places in scripture we have this clear picture of the trinity the Spirit is there. It's descending like a dove onto the Son. The Father is speaking from heaven. All three of the Godhead are present there. All the persons of the Godhead are there, working for his purposes. I could take you to Luke chapter 3, verse 22, and it talks about this, this visual image of a dove coming down. It's, it's almost like it's clear. It says the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. There's We don't know what they saw, but it seems that something tangible was able to be noticed. John, Gospel of John, verse 1, chapter 1, verse 32, says, And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I I can't, I I wasn't there, I don't know. Clearly, they're seeing something tangible physically happening here. They're describing it like a dove. Many, many commentaries would say it looks like they heard God speaking at some level too. So what are we seeing here in this moment? What is God doing? God is affirming Jesus publicly. This is God the Father publicly in front of all these people affirming his son, right? And that he is well pleased in him. That God has given full approval and and of affirmation to his son. Going to jump down a little bit. Matthew chapter 13 verses 13 and 4 or chapter 3 verses 13 and 14. It says then Jesus came from Galilee to Jordan to John and to be baptized. This is Jesus now coming to him to be baptized from John the Baptist's John would you have prevented him saying, John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. 
and do you come to me? John is just saying, look, he gets it that Jesus is, is God. You should be baptizing me. But Jesus answered him, let it be so for now. And thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And so then John consented and he baptized him. You know, Jesus didn't have to be baptized, but he was honoring his father. He was identifying with us as a sinner. He wasn't a sinner, but he was identifying with us. Second Corinthians, Paul writes in verse five, or chapter 5, verse 21, it says, For our sakes, he who made him to be sin, who knew no sin. God made him to be sin. He didn't sin. He took the punishment. He made him to suffer for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He wasn't a sinner. John the Baptist understood that. So what do we see here? God is just publicly affirming him. Last two verses, 12 and 13. The Spirit then immediately drove him, Jesus, out into the wilderness. And he was there in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals. It's the only place in all the Gospels, I think it says the wild animals. And the angels were ministering to him. Again, I'm short of time, so I can't go into all of this. What do, we, what do we see here? The Spirit drives him out. He resists Satan. The text here, when it talks about being with the animals, um, it really refers back to he has, a, he has a, uh, a relationship with the animals that is not contentious. In other words, it goes back to pre-sin, where we were in the garden with the animals. Right? He's with them in a state of peace. Right? That's what it's really kind of pointing to. And the angels were ministering to him. So the angels are subjected to him. They're ministering to him. Satan, he is rebuffing. He has no, Satan has no power over him. And he's at peace with the animal kingdom. So what do we see here? God affirms Jesus' divine authority. He has authority over the animal kingdom. He has authority over the angels. He has authority over the enemy. He has authority over Satan. He has total authority here. And he's demonstrating that in these 40 days and this time in the wilderness that he's just saying, my son has total authority. All right, we got to wrap up. So, I want to remind you, what does it mean to affirm? To state or assert positively, maintain as true. Another Definition could also be expressed to express agreement or commitment to. So you affirm, you express a commitment to something, right? And so I'm going to leave you with this. I don't have a next step. I have some questions as we think about the things we just said now that God the Father is affirming about God the Son. And I want to see where we're at. Let's, t- let's take a self-inventory here. Do you affirm that Jesus is God? That's a big question for us this morning. Was he God in the flesh? Was he just a human person that came down? Or was he really, do we understand that God affirmed him as Lord? The Old Testament pointed to him. He is God in the flesh. John understood, I am not worthy to be able to untie his shoes. Do you affirm his Jesus' majesty? Do you, do you affirm that he is, are we in awe of him? Or is he just our buddy? Like, do you, John said, I am not worthy to untie your shoes. And yet sometimes in our culture today, we act like Jesus is just our friend. And he is our friend, Scripture says. But, but there's a level of respect and all that should come with that. We've been talking about through some of the Old Testament. We come in and we, we should be in awe and worship and, and many. And we've, we've rolled back here some, and I'm glad. Many times churches are getting way too like, oh, let's just come and have a great time together. Which, it's good. We want to worship together. Don't get me wrong. But we should be in awe when we come into the presence of the Lord corporately and be in awe by him. I think we're missing the majesty, the awe, the awesomeness of who God is. I think this is very dangerous. Yeah, that's true for my life. So do you affirm that Jesus is God? Do you affirm his majesty? Do you affirm his authority over you? Do you you affirm that? Do Do you acknowledge his authority over you in your life? That he has the right to judge you for your sin. I affirm that for me. He has every right. He, every day I get mercy. I, I, I should not be allowed to continue and he gives me mercy. Do you affirm that Jesus has changed your life or has the power to change your life? 
Because you won't share the gospel if you don't think that Christ has the power to change the lives of the people that you're talking to. Yesterday, the reason we shared the gospel with people in this room and we ministered to people is because we believe that God has the power to change their life for eternity. That's why we do it. No for other reason, not for our own glory, for God, for those people. Do you affirm that Jesus is coming? Right? Do you believe that he's coming? Do you affirm that? And then I would ask finally, this kind of sums it up. Do you affirm him publicly in your life? When you talk to people, when you talk to your children, when you talk to your spouse, heck, even when you're here at church, do you affirm Christ publicly? Are you ashamed to do that? Do you not believe those other things and so you don't affirm him publicly? I, I don't know. I'm pushing myself. I'm, I'm saying, no, man, I, I want to affirm you, Father. I want to affirm your son. I, I want to acknowledge this in my life personally, but also publicly. How will they know if someone doesn't tell them, right? Romans 10. So today, as we leave here, let's affirm him in all of those things because he's worthy. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for our time together today. Lord, may all that we do bring you honor and glory today. Help us to live, help us to first see here in the text how, God, you are affirming your son. You're reminding us and telling us and proclaiming to us his divinity, his majesty, his authority, his coming, all of those things, Father, that he has the power to change our life, to make us a new creation. And Father, help us to affirm those things and let us go and affirm those things publicly in our life for your glory and our good. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for joining us today. If you have questions about this message or about the Ridge Church, you can contact us at info at theridgechurch.net. Have a blessed day.